Welcome to ADHD Flourishing, about living awesomely with autism and ADHD. You deserve recognition for both the challenges and the superpowers of this unique neurotype. Let's celebrate wisdom and support from real-life stories, and talk strategies to manage the difficulties of day-to-day life, so we can move beyond that to thriving and building a sustainable and awesome life. If you want to be here, you are accepted here, and you belong. I'm your ADHD host, Mattia Murray. Let's do this. Welcome to my guest today. This is My World is Blue, who is an ADHD artist, anarchist, and dad who works in special education, despises the sun, and is currently trying to relearn slappy curb tricks at his local bank parking lot to impress his kids. <laughs> Love that. Thank you for giving me that intro. <laughs> And to get started today, we're going to talk about your self-discovery journey as a late diagnosed ADHD artist, which is certainly, uh, there are other listeners in the same boat. So yeah, very uh, excited to hear about your journey and I'll just let you uh, share that any way you would like. Thanks for having me on. I got a diagnosis autism, ADHD in January of this year at the ripe age of 43 and it's been a quite the roller coaster ride how i came into it was unexpected shall i say uh, i work in special ed and i've been really struggling since we've i had kids to figure out a path in a career i tried my damnedest to become an artist in my 20s and 30s uh, while living in San Francisco, I I did not know how to market myself. I did not know how to sell a painting if my life depended on it. Um, I did not know how to you know go to cool parties and talk to the right people. I I kind of tried, but you know it, eventually like the kids kids arrived and it was like oh well that was it you know like I work retail I I'm a I'm a server. Um, you know, what do I do? So it's been a very kind of epic scramble to place myself within a secure foothold in the economy. Basically, I was lucky enough, you know, we had to move, we had to leave the Bay Area because we were priced out, as many people were at the time in the aughts. And uh, my friend said, oh, hey, if you move to this city, which I heard you're thinking about, maybe you can get a job working in special ed and i said well you know i thought to myself well i don't (laughs) i don't have any background working with children or students uh i I guess the closest thing i had which is what i put on my resume was that i worked at a skate shop and i uh kind of babysat skate teams so I, i worked in special ed for many years i think it was only by Poor examples of people doing things like doing a bad job at them that I start to think, well, maybe I could be a special ed teacher. Um, you know, look at these buffoons that are doing this in uh, are a major disservice. That was, you know, creeping into my thoughts along severe urgency of making more money because it's basically becoming uh, a sinking ship for many people in the working class. You know, even if you have a job, it doesn't mean you can even make rent. It doesn't mean you have any extra money for anything for your livelihood. And so 
uh, it, it's kind of just been this very long, stressful thing of like, well, okay, I'll do, I'll, you know, you know even, even as a t- becoming a teacher, it just seems like such a stretch for me because I'm not very social. I have a very finite amount of social energy that is afforded to me on a daily basis before I feel like I just can't talk anymore where I go mute and I just need a, I just need to stare at the wall and like decompress. And like, it, you know, it's just, even now I'm just, well, how do I, how am I going to. So I got my, I got a new grad program for special ed. And uh, this is after COVID after a bunch of horrible work related incidents. I lost my job during COVID because of issues related communication. I have a horrible time reading emails at the moment. I feel like I haven't opened an email and it's been sitting there longer than three hours. I assume it's just someone's behind that email. It's going to tell me I'm fired or something horrible because that's certainly coming into going, starting grad school. It was landed into the program like flat on my face and I was struggling to even, you know, make any of it happen but you know sure enough getting into my studies for just one class even i started to read about certain things and i don't recall exactly what topics it was but i I started curiosity about some issues i think at the time i was having a lot hard time reading books to my kids or i've always had uh, at the end of the night for bedtime for my when I put my kids to bed, I, I have a. It's very hard for me to read out loud. It, it's it's kind of like painful, which I now equate with the lack of spoons. And but it's it's it, it seems very, like it's not something I feel like I could relate with other people. Like oh you're tired, you can just read, or do a bad job. It just is literally painful for me to utter words out loud at that point. And there'd be times where I was just. Crying, kind of crying, like how hard it was. Just, I want to read my kids a book at night, and it's just, it was miserable. So that was just at the forefront of my thoughts, and I eventually ended up, ended up down a rabbit hole. Um, it wasn't social media driven at that point. I, I mean, I didn't have that as a resource quite yet, but um, I think I started scrambling through podcasts, maybe just internet in general, maybe I brought a book. And so I had the question, well, I have, you know, am I autistic? And um, I did feel very comfortable telling that many people in my life. I told some friends, um, you, you know, it was kind of said good things in response. Eventually I, you know, and then I started looking into diagnosis, like how the hell do I do this? I'm broke as hell. And I, I just, kind of lucked out by online someone mentioned on like a reddit or something like well there's a state agency it's like a vocational rehab agency and they do they can offer diagnosis and then i i called and i talked to them and they they said well they can't we can't help you unless you it's related to your job or improving your employment and i said well yeah i what i just dropped out of grad school because of I'm just in a downward spiral trying to figure this stuff out, and grad school is the core piece for me to advance my my uh, work standing. 
And so they agreed based on that. And I was able to get a diagnosis uh, that way. Wasn't it by, uh, in terms of how long people, um, it wasn't that bad. It was like within, you know, three or four. This past January, I was able to get the ADHD part, which they threw in at the, for free, I guess, as a freebie. I, I was quite surprised. And so I'm still picking up the pieces, trying to figure what it all means. It's, you know, as you well know, and many others know, it's a, it's a bleak landscape. If you are just relying on yourself, how to move forward as a late diagnosed adult with no resources and no money. So. <laughs> yeah, that is elements of that are really relatable, even though obviously our, our actual journey has been different. Um, and I don't have kids. And I think about that a lot for my, certainly my neurodivergent friends with kids who I'm close with, but even just on social media, I feel like it's a question people ask me a lot is like, Hey, how do I handle my own sensory needs when my kids sensory needs clash with mine? Like when my kid wants to be touching me all the time and I need to not have that or talking to me all the time and I need to not have that, that kind of thing. So anyway, I don't know if you want to talk about that at all, but I know that the the kids piece just adds this enormous other layer of of stress to this and even just with money, right? Because you you have to take care of them. So you have like you can't just kind of, you know, drop out for a while and take a big <laughs> extended break. Like you have yeah. to keep going. And I feel like that's um that just makes everything a lot harder. Yeah, I mean, uh, to, to be exact, when I lost my job, uh, public school, my first uh, paraprofessional job, it was during COVID when, you know, uh, fall was approaching, coming out of, was it 2020, very crazy summer. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, I just had a very foreboding feeling going into the school year that year we're like, well, how, you know, remote learning and all that, like how the hell is this going to work? And no one, you know, obviously the districts were scrambling to figure out, I mean, do you just like, how is it going to work? Like get, issuing out laptops to everyone. And I just, you know, but I'm here my kids, they're home all day. And what am I, how am I going to deal with this? And, and sure enough, it was a daily you know, it just, it just came, it just crept up and it was a daily shit show of, you know, my, my, my son is, uh, you know, he was in second grade at the time We're we're some, we were somewhat low tech. He's completely computer illiterate. All of a sudden he has to navigate a laptop and maintain a schedule in our household. And I had a, we have, I have a younger son than that. And I, basically, I was man just managing his blowouts all day long because he didn't want to go on his he didn't want to go to to his meetings. Um, my other son felt neglected. I'm just trying to feed everyone all day long. I'm just basically I was in the kitchen cooking nonstop. Um, that's always an issue. <laughs> uh, and it, I it, it was like every day I was like. How the, how am I going to do my job? Like, how am I going to even show up for, you know, it'd be these really awkward Zoom meetings where like, I didn't even know how to, I didn't know how to do Zoom. So I didn't know how to black out my screen and it would just be like, not me there. It'd be like a my radiator in my garage, you know, just like empty for probably an hour 
or maybe I didn't mute myself and it was just like me yelling at the dogs. Um, and it just kept going. And every day I'm like, well, when's this, when's this going to end? And the more, the more it kept going, the more afraid I got of talking to my higher ups about it, which I have a hard time with anyways, if I'm not in person with somebody, I, I don't really, I just, I kind of clam up. So it, you know, eventually it reached a four where they're like, well, you haven't shown up to, to all these different things. And, you know, we've been paying you and all this stuff and you're fired or, you know, and it was hor- It was this horrible incident, a stretch of time. Um, and I didn't know what else I could have done different other than ask for like a leave, which at that time I was horrified because, you know, I mean, there was an impending Trump coup that I was extremely scared of, rightfully so. And, uh, you know, I was just, it was peak COVID and I was worried about losing health insurance. These are the kind of things you can't say about why you want, you, you know, what you want to maintain your employment, but not, you know, ask for leave. But I, I found out all that a little too late. I lost my job and I really don't know what I could have done different other than the, fake zoom meetings you know like put a cardboard cut out of myself at a desk and that like that sentiment of i don't know what i could have done differently is i feel like again is a thing i hear a lot and have felt myself certainly in a lot of situations where it's like well i was doing my fucking best in a terrible (laughs) situation and nobody was you know nobody was helping or making an effort and then uh this is another thing you know that i talk to people about all the time is technically the ADA protects you, you know, if you had been diagnosed, say at this point, right. If you knew this, technically you're required, the ADA protects you in job situations. You are required to give you accommodations, all this stuff, which again, you wouldn't have known at that point, but in practice, what happens is people just get pushed out of their jobs when they request accommodations. Oh. Just in a bunch of industries, even though, again, it's technically illegal, but it happens uh-huh. all the time. So it's kind of this catch 22 where, you know, if if you had known exactly what you needed and been able to ask for it, even if they were legally required to help you with that, it wouldn't have necessarily helped. Yeah. So it's not only like you, it's not only you couldn't have necessarily done anything differently, but like, even if you've done everything, quote, perfectly by the book. That doesn't mean that your employer is going to actually follow the law and get you what you need. Yeah, and I had a good, you know, I had a good union. Like they did, they did, they they had nothing to say. I mean, I didn't give them much, but they were like silent the whole time. Basically, it was just like, oh, this guy didn't show up for work, and like there was nothing really I I could say much in my defense other than like, oh, there's a Trump coup coming, and I was I was losing. It was a rough ride, and it's kind of crazy how it keep it keeps becoming the case that oh, the dumpster fire of 2020 was really just a precursor to everything after it. It's not a bump in the road. Is there anything else you want to add about your journey, like after being diagnosed? So, like the last, I guess this year. Um, I guess it's just been very interesting working in special ed with a late diagnosis. Just I don't know. I, I somewhat expect like, you know, people in my field would maybe take an interest in me um, and ask me questions at least here and there. And since I do work with, you know, a lot of autistic 
students and there's a lot of things that are just people just kind of shrug about all day long at work and I feel like I do have some insight but I think there is a bias about uh, late diagnosed uh, neuro neurotypical passing uh, people who I think people are just confused or they're they're doubtful like what does this mean like how are you artistic you're you have a job and I you know I mean yeah, I, I rack my brain all all day long in social situations anyways about like what are people thinking what's what's going on in their dynamic towards me so who knows I, I do know that it's it's certainly not been a thing I, I unsolicited I might bring up my diagnosis here and there and I kind of time it because it's it's not asked about by anyone and I almost feel like I'm just monologuing and there's zero response when I do um so it, yeah it's it's definitely been disheartening because I almost feel like people don't care about what autism is or they don't want to advance their understanding even in special ed it, it's it's actually more fuel for me to feel compelled to actually become a teacher because I feel like um, there's so much misunderstanding and people don't, people really don't care, you know, even it's just a job and um, they're just trying to get by and, and just keep, keep things calm in the classroom. It's, it's not even like they, they want to get to the bottom of things. I mean, I'm, obviously there's good teachers and there's bad teachers. I've kind of been around bad teachers recently, I feel like. So that's my um, that's my domain of thought at this point. Yeah, and that uh, saying that they don't want to get to the bottom of things or that's what it feels like, I feel like that's certainly been one of my big frustrations in life, working with people who like don't care or aren't systems thinkers or are just happy to take the most surface level explanation, even if it obviously doesn't make sense, even at a surface level in my mind, <laughs> people are just like, oh, cool. Yeah. We'll just run with that. Um, <laughs> and I'm, you know, in the background being like, but what if this happens? And what if this happens? And they're like, what? <laughs> um, so anyway, I know that's, you know, that that's reading into what you're saying a little bit, but that, that sense that, you know, you want to understand things deeply and, and then also just your identity as an autistic adult is throwing into question or kind of putting a, a different light on some of the stereotypes that these teachers probably have in special ed from seeing one particular way that autism presents. And I don't know why this is coming to mind right now, but one of my favorite studies ever, just because I, I loved how it was done and what the conclusion was, is that when kids eat sugar, like refined sugar, it doesn't actually matter how much sugar they eat. It matters how much sugar their parents think they ate. That's what affects their behavior. So it's like the adults' expectations of the kids is actually yeah. what's causing them. I mean, not the sugar has no effect, but they were basically like, it's not just the sugar. It's also your, you know, the, the, the expectations of the adults around them being like, oh, you ate sugar. So you're just going to run around and like throw stuff and, you know, go nuts. And the kids are like, oh, cool. I can do that. Right. And it's, <laughs> it's like implicit circular thing. And in my in working with kids myself, which I have, you know, as a teacher, like a lot of what I've experienced with kids is that your expectations of them matter so much. And I, I know this plays out in the research, but like part of what's probably happening in, you know, the settings you're in are, you know, the teachers 
who are working on off of stereotypes and have low expectations of the kids and are not really expecting, you know, very much of them, the kids are responding to that. And so then it's sort of this like self, uh, perpetuating cycle where the, you know, then I don't know, I just, there's something there (laughs) I feel like. And so then you coming in and being like, Oh, Hey, this is what one version of an autistic adult looks like. I'm sure they're just like, wait, what? Like, that doesn't fit in the, the box that they're putting these kids in. I mean, most of the students in my class, they're autistic or nonverbal, they're boys. And, you know, even some of the, the, the females in the class, I would, I'm like, oh yeah, they're autistic. And my, and then I read their IP and they don't have a diagnosis and it, and I'm just like, and I'm just, so now it's like this thing. I'm like, look at all, all these autistic, potentially autistic students and they don't have a diagnosis. And I'm like, and I'm just thinking of like, oh God, how am I it's, that's how do you deal with that when you get deeper into the program or a you know a, a leadership position in the school you're just kind of facing down this giant kind of machine and then you know all the ABA therapy that's like bandied about by quote unquote ther- uh, prof- uh, specialists and like parents and just I'm just really kind of overwhelmed about the the level of uh, advocacy that, that is needed and how how well I will, will be able to you know push in those in those directions against certain things once you know I do become a teacher if I do um, so yeah it's it's all very very overwhelming like for, and I just got back into my my grad program uh, which I'm hopefully going to start up again in summer and I just saw that they have like a ABA department, which is, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect that at this school. You know, I've been around a lot of other, you know, neurodiverse people who will speak truth in any moment and stand up for things. And I'm, I am disposed to that to an extent, but a lot of times I just shut down and I'm kind of, I'm kind of in, in, uh, and anticipating like how much I will be able to put put forward of that in, in in terms of advocacy, something I'm kind of worried about. But yeah, it'll be a day to day day to day thing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, managing your own capacity, like in in all of those settings, right? Because it's different to be an advocate in the classroom, you know, live with the kid, like with other you know teachers or aides or whatever, and then very different to be an advocate to the school board or, you know, parents, like there's all these different settings that are all different. And I don't know how you are with, you know, task switching or context switching, but that's like a pretty common issue people have. And like, that's part of, I think what can be really hard is it's like, it's not just, oh, you're doing this set of tasks. It's, oh, all of these tasks are actually different versions or like, you know, require a different way of presenting yourself or way of talking. And anyway, it's just like, they're, they're actually different, even though they're all advocacy. Does that make sense? Yeah. It just, it's, it's somewhat disheartening because I've just, I've heard recently, maybe it was on your podcast or somewhere else about how people who are become, you know, full-time advocates and maybe even just in social media, they just, they burn out after a certain point and they don't, they're not there all of a sudden. And um, it, I just, I kind of worry about that. I mean, I, I, I don't know. 
I, I do think I have a certain level of uh, stamina, um, which keeps me around with things for a while. As, um, so ultimately, I guess I, I, I guess I have, I, I don't really have a choice, you know. I'm, it, it, that's if that becomes my my professional work that's cut out for me. I, I don't think I'd be able to be in that situation and not do it. But it's it's definitely going to take its toll, and I know that in advance. Um, emotionally because it it's it's just so hard to see how how bad things are actually in in the way things are run and just see it, it face to face and and know that's what you're up against um but you know what are you gonna do yeah uh, i'm just thinking of the many many times when i've said when I've like pointed out a rule or a law or i'm like this is how something's supposed to be done and my partner's like yeah that's how things are supposed to be done. It's not actually how it works in real life. And I was like, but the rule yeah. exists. Yeah. It'd be great if we could follow it, guys. <laughs> well, and the flip side is I take a lot of strength in the supreme knowledge that is the emperor has no clothes. There, There is literally a bunch of buffoons running around looking out for themselves and there's a facade in front of them and the sooner we reveal the facade and reveal the you know pull back the curtain it just makes things so it demystifies everything in our society uh to, which is can embolden us to you know you know attack it in the proper manner i think i think you know it, from the outset Things are very intimidating and, I, and they will remain intimidating on a persistent level because of how widespread these things are. But, you know, these people don't care. They're just looking out for themselves. And it's really just, um, you know, people with cush jobs might or they might be lazy about about these things. And, and you know, you can expose them, you can confront them, you can make them. Uh, feel like they should be doing more you could put the put the put fire under them um, you can meet other people that feel the same way and and push for things so i i do feel like they're not masterminds that and that's important to understand yeah yeah that's a really good point i think even in yeah and it's very especially because also a lot of people listening probably have complex ptsd right like pervasive right because just his growing up neurodivergent and not having your needs met is automatically traumatizing plus bullying all this stuff right and one of the features of complex ptsd is this very uh weird relationship with authority so i mean weird just doesn't really describe it but like this this difficult relationship with authority and in particular this feeling that uh authority figures are sort of unapproachable or like that we can't do anything about it. Like this, this real feel feeling of powerlessness is probably how yeah. I would describe it for myself. <clears throat> so I love that you're pointing out, you know, you can reach this point where, you know, it's, it's difficult for you. It takes a lot emotionally for you, but you recognize the, the truth that you can do something about these people in power. They're not just sort of an unassailable, you know, mastermind figure they're just doing a bad job and there are things that you can, you know, say or do around that. I think that's my general, general outlook towards everything. I mean, I, I, I think I've always had a disposition towards resenting figures of authority 
for the reasons you pointed out that there's no there are illegitimate um, positions that are forced upon us and we don't need to accept it for what it is and i i think the sooner you realize that that their power is illegitimate the 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 the, the better off you are and i think and there's a certain strand of autistic persons maybe they grew up in conservative households where they become very pedantic and like law abiding and well to a certain extent i feel like i do i do i'm very uptight about people like maybe just appreciating basic decency and, and rules and stuff in terms of authority figures that i think i think we need to educate each other how there's nothing inherent in their positions um especially like since my diagnosis just seeing how shitty the the world of research is and how it's all geared towards curing autism and um uh, you know that billion dollar industry of of uh, getting scared parents to pay for aba and all this stuff you know it's just the fact that it exists doesn't mean we need to cower in front of it beyond the contingency of of autistics who might be bootlickers to 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 lack of a better expression i've met a lot of autistic bootlickers who are just you know they're they they love the police or you know they how how dare you disrespect you know you know the president or something like that you know i i mean i think that comes from indoctrination which coincides with a certain uh expectation of people following rules and they they think that that is for the better however i do think there's a very healthy current within autistic people to you know not be beholden to these things which i i relate also to the kind of the gender fluidity within the autistic community where like whose rules are these there's they're not mine like why why am i going to subscribe to these gender roles that are i i i don't know that's kind of just throwing it in there but that that came to mind yeah and this might feel like kind of a weird transition but actually what you're just well right before the gender stuff it actually makes me think of um you as an artist, which I would like to touch on, um, if you still want to talk about that, because in particular, that, that feeling of, uh, you know, like we were mentioning some autistic folks who, you know, really are doing well within the system and like it and kind of want to get everybody else in line, just like with the existing system. I imagine that's because it's working for them. Right. So I'm thinking of like, you know, autistic folks I have, well, but let's, let me say autistic white men I know with you know, what I call big kid jobs, like jobs that pay really good money for a really long time. <laughs> like, okay. If that's working for you and, yeah. and just sort of like towing the line is working for you and you don't really, you're not, you know, if you're not queer, like if you, if you're, if none of the, if you're sort of able to just fit into the system and slot into place, I mean, it's a form of masking, even if you're not sort of traditionally masking, like it's a form of fitting in and kind of getting along. And that's where I see some folks like that. I don't know as many of them, but I, I have seen that that real, you know, does I, well, actually one of my uncles, uh, that reminds me of a lot, what you were describing. And yeah, I think if you're a weirdo, if you're genderqueer, right. If, if you don't fit in, in some of these other ways, if you're not like really conforming in a lot of ways, you can't, you're not getting the benefits. It's not, you're not like getting the stuff back from the system. So why would you go with it? Anyway, that, that just made me really think of like part of why people become artists, you know, is to like, 
express themselves or really, you know, like say something, but it's also this whole, like, Hey, I don't fit in. Like I'm having, I'm trying to express something and I don't see an avenue to express that, but Hey, here's the arts. And I can maybe say something in a different way or kind of have a different avenue for expression. So anyway, I don't know if that has anything to do with your own experience, but that is, that is my very weird transition into, would you like to talk about your artist life? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. I, I kind of go back and forth in my mind about like my personal unmasking uh, trajectory because while on the one hand, I openly stim more now than I did before, I always... I, well, I used to think I literally just used to think I had a Chuck Chuck Berry leg because I would I would uh, do this kind of rock with my leg, which is a very standard thing for guitarists, rock and roll guitarists to do to keep time. And uh, but you know, but now I, I I openly stem more or less. And but other than that, I can't, I'm just kind of thinking about how much I feel like I've uh, unmasked progressively over my life regardless of my diagnosis point um be because i was labeled as an artist from a very early age because that was what i did from i think age one my mom said i drew these like circles on his um and so i've always drawn and i've always been treated as an artist i've always been labeled as an artist and people have largely accounted for whatever idiosyncrasies in their minds that they saw in me as like, oh, he's just uh, on his own path. He's an artist and that whole thing, you know, it, I, you know, I always think about how our society, as much as they don't appreciate art in terms of giving them a proper means of living with financially, people really worship artists and romanticize the hell out of them where they're this thing like oh they're so creative and there's people that, that they're not they're like artists sycophants that you know they're just like they swoon over artists and you know it's enough of a thing that like i feel like i benefited from that because people would just give me a pass about things or like if like i wanted to be on my own which is all the time you know like oh i had my social capacity met and now i'm gonna go walk around the edge of the playground in second grade by myself for the rest of the peer, the recess, you know, I think people just let it go. Cause, Oh, that's the artist weirdo doing their thing. Um, they're contemplating their next, you know, drawing or something, which not, isn't true, but um, yeah. So, and so I think that for me personally, in conjunction with maybe I guess circumstantially, when I grew up, I, I was born in 1979. I had a very keen interest from an extremely early age in what was punk? What is this punk music? And then after that, shortly after, like right when I was in third grade, like I started hearing like hip hop albums from the period, like Def Jam cassettes, like Run DMC, Beastie Boys, LL Cool J. And I was just, I was just ensnared within the, the burning curiosity about those things. I'd say pretty well before most kids took a strong interest in music that wasn't just their parents' music. Um, that didn't, that I think kids didn't try to forge a musical identity until adolescence. 
when you know that's when like the kind of cultural grab bag comes about where people are like how do i define myself culturally but you know i was very i think precocious and i'm not bragging and this is just the truth um uh, very interested in pop music in general left of center pop music uh rock and roll punk uh thrash metal at the time um uh, skateboard culture and so there was all these things at the time that were in i think in the aftermath of punk in the aftermath of hip-hop which are inherently if you get down to it renegade uh subcultures uh created by youth and on their own terms outside the parameters of you know adult society a lot of it co-opted of course uh, over time but um, I think my gravitation towards that stuff really helped me. I started masking at an extremely early age, where in punk I saw people being themselves, not stereo in a stereotypical fashion. You know, gender roles were pretty open, um, it, very progressive in terms, especially in terms of like, you know, girls dress this way, boys dress this way. You know, that was all completely discarded within the punk. Uh, kind of subculture with i mean obviously there's different segments of it some react more reactionary than others but i'd say like yeah over time the more i got exposed to that music the more i just felt comfortable being myself at all times and to the point where like i'll never forget i heard somebody say at different points in my life to like my, my mom or to my girlfriend or whatever i i, I overheard people say you know the thing about him i, I was eavesdropping but i heard it is that he can't he can't not be himself at any given time and I, that was like probably like one of the nicest thing i've ever heard people someone say about me i don't know if they meant it that way and it's true because i think at a certain point i just learned like i have to be myself in all situations i think the only times when that started to become an issue is in the workforce when that becomes a real issue and i don't even think i ever was able to not be myself in the in the workforce, and that's that's where I met a bunch of a lot of problems along the way, because I can't I can't not speak my mind, I can't not say what I mean. It's very hard for me to be um, superficial just for the sake of making things okay. But yeah, so that was all tied into my experience as an artist, someone who was inspired by uh, punk music, hip hop teenage subculture movements where they forged their own identities that were countered the mainstream. I, I think that was very, I feel very lucky to have had that, that insight. And I, I didn't fully mention it, but skate, skateboarding as well, which is tied into both of those. So I feel like I kind of got it. I definitely got a jump start on masking to the point where I don't even know. I don't even really know what masking unmasking means for myself at this point. I don't, I don't, not sit, not to say like my life, my work is complete, but I just, I don't know. I scratch my head all the time. Like, do I, am, do I need to further reveal myself now? I think that's just going to be a problem if I go any deeper into like how I, my natural tendencies. So I don't know. I love that. And I, I feel kind of similarly that I, I just wasn't really taught to mask because both my parents are neurodivergent and very countercultural in their own different ways. So I feel like they were just kind of like, yeah, fuck it, do what you want. Like be, be a weirdo, bite people. We don't care. Um, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. 
<laughs> um, I was also thinking with like skateboarding uh, that, and I know, I know more about this from the, I know that like snowboarding culture, for example, is one in which people usually people who stick with it, it's because they're getting into flow states and that's part of why they love it. And I know there's like overlap with skateboarding, but I was thinking in particular that, that, uh, that you probably got a lot of dopamine naturally from skateboarding because there's that element of danger. There's like learning new things. Your brain is like super engaged in a, in a really particular way. And I bet that that was giving you brain chemicals that like ADHD meds would have done if you'd had those. <laughs> I was thinking, I'm wondering if that was like actually like almost a, and, and I don't mean self-medication in a bad way, but like actually really actually helping your brain, you know, get some of what it needed. Yeah. I mean, if I think back to periods of major depression in my life, before skateboarding, I was a, a talented athlete. I played, I played soccer originally, but then I was, I, I played baseball then ice hockey. And, you know, I was, I was in like all-star teams and traveling teams and won state championships and all that kind of stuff. So I got, I got to kind of see from the inside out the way that the need for, the need for athletic uh, activities becomes um, blockaded for certain individuals because of the politics of organized sports. And so me, like many other adolescents, um it's a very common story dropped out of organized sports where we where i was well fit you know i was well suited to keep going and do good uh, but it got to a certain point where i i'm like i don't fucking i don't care about these fanatical parents or coaches screaming their heads off when i'm the one on the field i'm the one with the vested interest in my performance but you guys are emotionally losing your heads you're very concerned about the point, the, the score tally at the end of the game. I'm just concerned about doing a good job right here. So there was a natural recourse for many people, many of my peers to get fully into skateboarding or graffiti where they had complete autonomy. And yes, like you're saying, it was very uh, liberatory. And uh, I definitely feel like it, it fulfilled um, a lot of my, you know, need for, um, yeah, dope, I guess maybe dopamine. I don't really know much about that, but, um, skateboarding in particular, cause I think about it a lot cause I have to do, I have to play basketball at my job during PE with the students. They like to play basketball and all the stop start of it and the adult, the kind of slow mo moments, where you're not necessarily playing, you're waiting for the ball. That doesn't exist. So skateboarding is per it's perpetual motion. You know, it, 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 as long as you're, if you're not taking a break, you're rolling around nonstop. And there's that sensation of the wheels, which I would say is one of the best feelings in the world for me personally. And if you combine that with the ability to do tricks where you're jumping up and you're landing and you're doing it, it's, you definitely become addicted to that. And I, you know, I, I'd say skateboarding was one, one of the best things that ever happened to me in terms of building a, a personal, you know, kind of satisfaction and, and uh, autonomy and freedom within an athletic uh, outlet, which my body needed. Um, I think one of the things I definitely feel like for, autis for autistic people or neurodivergent people is we need, we need body movement and Unfortunately, there's so many barriers to that with the politics of sports, you know, like 
the, not everyone wants to get into a game and jump in and, and like playing a team and where you're going to either do good or bad and people are going to be people are going to be proud of you or you're going to do a poor job and then you know there's there's winners and losers it's like i i was just thinking how like if i become a special ed teacher like i think you should have a dance party at first period every day because people need to have a, a free and open way to move their body where they don't have to feel self-conscious about their performance in a certain way i mean skateboarding is a difficult sport and it's not for everyone so i can't say hey everyone should skateboard but you know we, you know it, it was invaluable for me because my body needs movement and i'm realizing that even now in my 40s like i want to stay i'm starting to skateboard again and i feel like a whole human being in a way i haven't for so long because it, it's just this it's just this thing it's in you know you talk I've, you know, you talk to other skateboarders, people that took it seriously in their life, they're kind of like possessed. They kind of become possessed with like a love of skateboarding because it's so, there's nothing like it. It's, you can take it anywhere, anywhere there's concrete. It's a, it's kind of this very triumphant uh, reappropriation of our urban hell that we live in, or maybe suburban hell, where concrete becomes not necessarily this horrible ugly thing i mean it can still be that but you're using it for something that's that's um you know you're subverting it and turning it into something creative and it's very open-ended and and i think that was just very invaluable for me as a teenager and i even still i i i would really hope i can keep i broke my i broke my arm two months ago starting up again i lasted like two weeks and i was pulling tricks again it was kind of exciting and then sure enough i uh i shit and i broke my arm but my arm's sealed now so it's like oh do i am i going back but I, I probably will but i haven't done it yet i love the idea of the dance party at the beginning of the day i would i am a hundred percent here for scrapping the current american school system and having having ADHD people redesign it. Cause I think we could do a really great job. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Cause what, cause also, I mean, yes, we do need different things and we, we need accommodations, but also again, having worked with a lot of kids, like stuff that works for ADHD kids works for pretty much all kids, not everybody yeah. and everybody's yeah. a bit different, but like, you know, that need to move your body and that helps, you know, with all the sinking stuff in the brain, like there's all these things that like help us. I think are just generally tend to be great for kids. And then to contrast that with, you know, what we were talking about earlier with all the day job stuff and how that's just like the, the exact opposite of what we need and how we work well versus how, like, I, I wrote down this phrase that when you're talking about music ensnared with a burning curiosity <laughs> in music, I was like, <laughs> yes, that's like such a good description of when a special interest takes hold of you. It's just like, this is this is all I want to do. This is all I want to think about. But it's not just an interest. It feels really good. Yeah. It feels so good. And like the more of that we can have in our lives, typically the better we feel. And then, you know, like you said, once you get to adulthood and you just need to like support your kids or, you know, like live this kind of regular life to get health insurance, like that <laughs> is again, the opposite of what we actually need and how we work well. So it's sort of the other thing I think that sucks about that is that instead of using our strengths, it's it's ignoring all of our strengths completely. It's like, nope, we don't need that like extreme burning curiosity. Like you can just put that down over there and come do this boring thing. 
for health insurance and like, oh my God. Anyway, <laughs> I, don't have, I don't have a solution for that. That's just the, <laughs> the problem in which we live, but it, it really sucks. And it sucks for the kids too. I think who are trapped in like, you know, schools that aren't serving them. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I do want to start wrapping up for time. So I do want to ask, I know, obviously we could keep talking about a bunch of these things for a really long time, but is there anything that you feel like, um, either that you haven't said that you want to make sure people hear, or just sort of like reiterating, like something that you feel like is really important for people to hear who are listening to this? You know, we're all, I think we're all deeply alienated persons more so, um, in the neurodiverse community as a shared experience within humanity of alienated persons living in a capitalist society and i i think i very i very much struggle with how to properly uh insert myself into what i see to be the dire need to change things which only comes about through organization and banding together with others like-minded people i'm very interested in figuring out ways where autistic people can link up with each other because it's very much it's very hard for me to commit to things socially outside of my job i mean i you know i'm more or less busy with kids if i'm not at work so it's it's kind of, it's very it's very daunting to think how am i going to find time for activism or joining an organization to do good in my community. However, I, I do think there is a potential for autistics with, you know, in terms of special interests in through their special interests to form deep connections with other individuals, even if it's just online in ways where we can have some type of involvement within a larger group beyond our isolated, lonely selves to push for things that we need. I mean, in each individual experience, that's going to be different depending on where you are, what your interests are. But I do think that we need to stop seeing ourselves as just voters and we need to take it upon ourselves that the only way we improve our lives is by doing it, making things better ourselves. Um, Waiting around for some person above us, some authority figure to make things better. Hopefully the right politician does the right thing. That's shit. I think we need to move away from that. And even if we are dependent on politicians still at this point, we need to figure out ways to apply pressure to them. And we can do we can only do that in groups. We can only do that through solidarity efforts in in advocating in a coordinated manner from the bottom, not waiting for people from the top to bestow their benevolent um, decisions upon us, which don't come about on their own. They only come about because we force them to. So I think that's that's something to think about as, as autistics who have a tendency to be somewhat sheltered socially. I, I mean, it's not like something I'm, I've mastered, but it's something I aspire to in my general thinking about what I want to do with myself. So I love that. I'm I'm not gonna clap because that sounds terrible on a microphone, but I'm I'm thinking clapping thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And also, I mean, like right now, um, I'm hearing this from a lot of folks in a lot of different states, 
um, because there are things that people are calling, you know, like ceasefire in Gaza or like there are other, you know, big conflicts in the world or big things happening that people are calling their representatives about more than usual. And I'm hearing that representatives in a lot of states in the U.S. are, uh, they've just turned off live answering, like they're not even having their staffers answer phones anymore. And they're not responding to people's messages. They're not responding to people's emails. So, you know, the whole like, oh, if we just, you know, engage with our representatives in the in the way that they tell us to right in this like correct manner, they're not even listening to that right now, because they don't give a fuck about us. And they don't right. certainly don't give a fuck about brown people in the Middle East. So like, anyway, I'm, I'm not going to go on a whole rabbit hole with that. But like, I'm very worked up about the the whole, you know, we can't trust the, we can't wait for the politicians to do the right thing because even the ones who we liked and voted for, if there's anybody that you like at the federal level, once you are ensconced as a politician at the federal level, there are a lot of forces working to make you not listen to the little people. So anyway, that's just like a thing right now that like, they're literally not listening to us and they've turned off their, their like live phone call things in most States. So anyway, yeah, we need to take different kinds of action besides just, you know, talking quietly and gently and politely (laughs) through the the proper channels, like, you know, confronting politicians while they're eating dinner, for example, has been effective. So anyway, uh, (laughs) yes, yes, yes. And I also really loved, I want to just like highlight what you said about, you know, finding, communities around special interests, because for example, if somebody like me or like you, who has sort of a public facing element to their work, we still like, in order for us to have capacity to do that, part of how we're getting that is through our own communities. So like an autistic person who doesn't have capacity to do, you know, public facing social work, but can be in a community supporting other autistic folks so that they can go do that. Like that's literally being a part of the network of helping. You don't have to do all of the work yourself. So that's another thing I just wanted to point out is like for me being in community around my special interests helps give me the energy to go do this work that I do. And I'm sure it does for you as well. So that's another, I just want to say like, that is, that is helping. It's just not as like big and flashy, um, but it's also good for you. So, yeah. Yes. There's a place for everyone in, in the struggle. There's not, so there's no such thing as, well, I'm just not cut out for the struggle we all need to figure out our particular peculiar niche within the the greater cause of of uh making the world a better place so yes okay that is a perfect note to end on so i'm gonna leave it there um would you like to share your instagram with folks so they can come look at your art i can be found at my world is blue iz for is on instagram if you want to talk to me i'm there awesome thank you so much this was lovely thank you so much thank you thanks for listening you may have seen the bonus episode yesterday where i shared a workshop about a way to set intentions and in particular with an eye on your personal life your personal goals starting with how you want to feel as opposed to the big thing that you might want to get done or the the goal or intention itself and actually working backwards from how you want to feel backwards to what might actually get you there. It's a method I've found very useful myself. And at the end of that, I also shared a special session I've made. If you want to meet with me and plan an intention for 2024, it's called new year map your intention. The link is in the show notes. 
You don't have to listen to the workshop recording first, but I do recommend it if you would like to, just so you're coming with some ideas prepared. That said, if you don't know what your intention is, that's part of what I can help you figure out. But one way to start with that is, was there anything last year or maybe even the last two years in my case, I have one of those where there was something you really, really wanted to get done. You had the motivation, you had the desire but you just weren't able to make it happen for whatever reason. And I know there can be a lot of things that get in the way, but part of what I can help you with is figure out what's likely to get in the way and how can you actually plan ahead a bit for some of these common obstacles in in your own case, whatever's specific to you. One more little bonus I'm throwing in for anyone who signs up by December 25th, 2023, after your session, I'll take the notes I wrote and do some research for you to help you find potential resources. That could be tech solutions, tools, techniques, books, other podcast episodes, specific people to connect you to, etc. I have an enormous body of resources from helping hundreds of neurodivergent people, as well as my own reading and research in my own life. So for everyone who checks out by the end of the day on December 25th, I will do that research session for you after we actually meet. And then I'll send you a follow-up email with recommendations of resources and people and such to check out to jumpstart your process. And if it is connecting you directly with another person, I will ask your permission first. I won't make that connection without your consent. Of course, everything I send is totally optional. I'll try to find a balance between info dumping and making sure it's really targeted for your exact situation right now. And you can come back to it whenever you're ready. One of my favorite things to do is to help people feel unstuck and like they can get into action. So that's what this session is for. If you're interested, the link's in the show notes. Thanks for being here and taking a moment for yourself. I hope the episode sparks some ideas or possibilities for your own journey. If you're looking for gentle ongoing support, I invite you to join the Like Your Brain community. It's a non-hierarchical and no pressure space to share our lived experiences together and learn from each other. Ask authentic questions, share your own wisdom, and be a part of building a safer space for folks with identities that are often marginalized. And if you're not yet ready to be seen in a group space, we've all been there, you can join the podcast support tier, which has a private podcast feed with some of the learnings from Like Your Brain and additional podcast content, so you can absorb on your own terms and timeline. We're here whenever you're ready. The link is in the show notes or at patreon.com slash Mattia. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash M-A-T-T-I-A. Have a great week.